The family economy is God's idea. It's not our idea. Industry or industrialization, separating the family, those are man's ideas. Uh, God has to be the genesis of the mover. He's the first mover in this. And so it begins when you have the desire in your heart. When God has planted that seed, I trust, as he did for us and as we see him doing for many, many other families, he will grow that. It's a matter of walking by faith in a large, in a large measure. How do modern nine to five lifestyles affect our families and impact the way we connect with others and with God? Can we strike a balance between fostering strong families, providing for our material needs, and creating communion with the divine? In this week's episode, author and homesteader Rory Groves shares his journey toward a more durable way of life and invites us to reconsider what we do and how we do it so that we can build things that last in this world and in the next. This is Living the Call. Rory Groves, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very grateful to be here. Oh man, it's such a blast to have you. And I'm, I got I got I got to start with this really quickly because I was just joking with you a second ago. We're trying to get 10 pounds of flour in a 5-pound bag, but that's how I feel about this conversation, my friend. Here's the the first sentence of the foreword of your book, okay? And by the way, you're talking to a guy who's got about 10,000 books in his library, okay? So I take these things very seriously. I actually read forewords. I'm one of those weird dudes. Me too. Yeah. Few few books are actually ground are actually groundbreaking in concept and execution. Fewer still, no more than a handful each year, accomplish this in more than one way. Durable Trades by Rory Groves is one of those very few. And I got to tell you, brother, I actually, I can affirm that because, and I haven't gotten through the book because I keep reading and then going Hmm. back and rereading certain things. Hmm. But we'll open with this, okay? I feel like almost one of those like old time prospectors, the gold prospectors who kind of like you're, you're picking, you got the pickaxe going and you're picking and you're picking and you're picking and all of a sudden you hit that little sparkle of gold. Mm-hmm. And what you find is that it's actually a vein, right? That kind of leads to like even greater things. Mm-hmm. That's what I feel about the first 50 pages of your book. It's kind of like striking that vein because you go into like, I mean, the stuff that you're talking about here, and you go, you, you start in the past and kind of look at historical evolution of civilizations and the, the you know, the, the sort of background that leads to the notion that there are trades that have stood the test of time. Mm-hmm. But in kind of turning these pages, you, it, it really has been a profound experience of both the preparation that I must have taken to write this book mm-hmm. and also the implications of what you found. So mm-hmm. first and foremost, I just wanted to start with that. Wow. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, you never know when you're <clears throat> putting a couple of years of your life into something, if anyone else is going to care about it. And that was certainly the case with this project that I didn't set out to write a book, but it was something that was burning on my heart for my own family. And as, like you said, that's a great way to put it. As I started to walk down this track of the gold vein, it just, a lot of things were opening up. And I thought, you know, there might be some other families out there that would be interested in this find as well. So I'm just so grateful. I'm amazed that it's gotten the reception that it has. And I'm so grateful that it's sparking for other people and other families uh, a similar interest that it did for ours. I've referred the book already to about a half dozen people. I'm not even, you know, done with it. So, um, you know, you're going to have a few more readers. <laughs> what was the genesis of this, right? Was this a moment mm. of inflection for you where you're like, 
because you've got this really interesting background, right? You're you kind of you're a founder of businesses, a kind of a software guy by trade. You worked in the secular world, big city, like all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then now you're you know you're kind of a you know a, a homesteader in a way, but really mm-hmm. doing it in a very unique way. Was this kind of like sort of a, a, just a dam that broke, or was it this kind of gradual thing that you found yourself leading you in this direction? Yeah, I mean, certainly God's hand was providential in all of these steps. I never would have imagined. I mean, people bring up, you know, you were a computer programmer, and then now you're on a farm and a homestead and and a rural acreage. And I tell them, I'm more surprised than anybody. And and the people who are closest to me, m- my wife not to be excluded from that, sure. are more surprised than anybody. But it really was a gradual transition. I think that the 20 years that I spent in high technology laid the groundwork for the contrast that I saw when I came to more of a family-centered, agrarian, kind of close-to-the-land experience later in life. Um, It might have been something that I would have missed had I not been in the big city, working in the most advanced technologies, always trying to stay on top of all of those things all the time. You know, I might have missed that. And I think, on that note, I think a lot of people who work in these trades or grew up around these trades don't actually realize the value that they are. I mean, they're certainly blessed by it, but if they haven't lived in an alternate lifestyle and had that experience, they might actually be missing out and they may not know the value that they have. For those who don't, or maybe not as initiated in the, the idea of these kind of durable trades, A, they should obviously read the book and get to know your work, and we'll make sure that they do on the show notes to this episode. But how would you summarize this idea of the durable trade? Like, what is it? What does it mean? Well, and this this harkens right back to what we're saying. So I spent uh, 20 years, I started out as a uh, consultant. Well, actually started out as a programmer, as an employee, and then became an independent contractor, and then eventually founded my own software business. And so through all the iterations for the whole of my career, uh, one of the key things about this industry is how fast things go obsolete. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you like how I wrote a book, then books, you know, uh, yeah, they can, depending on the topic, they can certainly become irrelevant, but the book is still a book even after the author dies. But the kind of things that I was building in technology, you know, you might spend three years building something and within six to 12 months later, it's obsolete. And that didn't bother me at first, but after a couple decades, it's like, you know, am I putting my effort, my hands, my energy, my my risk? I'm taking a lot of risk in many ways. Am I putting it into something that will last? Mm. So it was kind of, that was the inflection point. Uh, here I was kind of at a point in my career where I needed to decide if I was going to re-up, right? If I was going to continue on this path of, inventing new software that may or may not be successful in the marketplace and then ultimately have nothing to show for it at the end of 20 years. Um, And then the second thing that was really weighing on me when I was reconsidering my career, so I'm 44 now, so I started this probably back when I was about 40, 41, was whether um, I didn't have a family when I started out in this track. Mm. I mean, I was a programmer. I was young and single and loving everything about it. But I didn't have a family. I didn't really have that generational mindset that I do mm. now as a father. We have five children. I've uh, been married for 16 years. And so I was thinking, not only is there a career that maybe doesn't go obsolete or doesn't need constant retooling, retraining, and I'm building things that will last, 
is there a way to do that together with my family while I'm at it? And so kind of when I stumbled across this concept of the family economy, Mm. this is where it just cracked wide open for me. And I said, okay, I'm going to step back and take a hard look at what I'm going to put the rest of my life to. Uh, is it just about the paycheck or how much money I can earn? Because you, you do get a lot of money as an employed software engineer. There's no question about that. But what's really going to bring meaning and fulfillment and mm. be a blessing to my family at the end of all of this? So that's that was the genesis uh, when I started asking questions, started doing research on this topic. So in a way, the, the, the writing of the book itself, which I, I believe came out in 2020, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, so the writing of the book itself, in, in fact, was for you a part of that journey, right? The, the, like putting this thing together Absolutely. and getting to the outcome. You're like, oh, okay, I get it. This isn't like you were doing this thing and now writing a memoir about, about it for the rest of us. No, yeah, no, this is an in-situational uh, change of life. Uh, writing the book changed our lives. Uh, really pulling back the curtain on a lot of these aspects of industrialism and the way our society has evolved over the last 230 years and looking at some of these long-term stable professions. I mean, that that changed our lives. Yeah, uh, we, we had some kind of curiosity in it. We had already lived on a farm for a while. You know, we're kind of dabbling in it. But when I was really doing the research, that's that was, yeah, that was the pivot for us. And so you're actually, when you're reading the book, you're getting... Uh, um, the the full story, and I, I share in the book and in parts of the book where I, you know, things that I had learned along the way while I was doing this. Yeah, and and I think that brings a lot more power to the book, frankly, because as a reader, you're looking at somebody who's actually discovering in addition to sharing and teaching, which which also gives you a sense yeah. of connection. This this notion too around, um, you know, you found yourself uh, creating a lot of things that had this kind of built-in obsolescence from the beginning, yeah. lest anybody think that that is something that is limited to the scope of high technology or software. It really isn't. And one of the things that you kind of mm. lean into right away in the book is this radical, like logarithmic rise in specialization that has not only happened mm. in our culture, but tends to happen, in, if you look at sort of you know past great civilizations, is like this moment of like mm. crazy uh, exponential growth and specialization that leads to more complexity. Mm. And then the whole thing starts getting a little wonky, right? The more complex it gets. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that's the, the main thesis of Joseph Tainter in his book, The, Com the Collapse of Complex Civilization, is just that. Uh, uh, societies all throughout history inevitably uh, grow in complexity. And, and there's, very, there's good reasons why. You know, they, they solve problems. Their problems come up. Uh, they need to solve them. And they use technology. They use specialization. They use other forms of complexity in order to solve these problems. And then they move on. But at some point, the complexity outweighs the, the ability for the society to maintain it. And then you have what is known as collapse. It's the mm. rapid... Uh, um, uh, decomplex. How would you say the the the, the rapid? Uh, um, yeah, simplification. Unspecializing. Oh, simplification. Yeah, yeah. Despecialization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Despecialization. The simplification of a society, and, and he chronicles all these societies. And, and the the bottom line is that um, no one escapes it. Mm. I mean, eventually, no one escapes it. Uh, America is a uh, very strong nation, but we're only two hundred and thirty 
you know, years old. That's not really that old from a, c a civilized standpoint. You know, many of these nations, uh, many of these um, powerful kingdoms in the past, Egypt and South American and, and Rome, of course, they, let, they lasted a lot longer. But eventually they all uh, succumbed to complexity. And yeah. so that's, um, that, that rise in specialization is what I anchor to uh, a period of time known as the Industrial Revolution, where an immense amount of complexity entered, not just, of course, our country, but this was going on all around the world, and it continues to go on around the world today. Yeah, I, I was joking with, uh, with one of my sons, because, you know, I, the, the, the most feared question among my children is somebody asking him, what does their dad do for a living? Because, you know, <laughs> half the time, half the time, it's like they don't answer it or they kind of throw some uh, abstract concept, right? I, I'm, a, I'm essentially also a consultant. I run a consulting company. That's what I do for a living. Um, but when I really, you know, when they, the last time I got asked that question and my, and my son was kind of asking me, well, like, Dad, how would you kind of break it down? What exactly you do? If you were to kind of break it down to its most rudimentary form, like I get paid to basically talk type and think that's honestly what i ultimately get paid for it's like these and and in the and in a field that is uber uber specialized right so it's this like mm. if you if you kind of peel back the, the problems that i'm helping to solve although they're different than software but nevertheless they are in a way kind of you know in built-in obsolescence challenges things that will evolve mm. momentarily and yet, like we, or at least I do, I, I devote so much energy and time to that, that it really, reading this book, you know, makes, certainly makes me aware that I'm operating at perhaps one of those fears that you articulate in the book or those levels that you articulate in the book. I think it's the quaternary one. Maybe, I, maybe I'm misremembering mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. where it's like this level of specialization that is happening all over the place with so many people. But the people who are dealing with those primary needs of a civilization, right, farming, agriculture, et cetera, et cetera, is so much smaller than that, than that the group of people who are working on these extraordinarily, you know, complicated or sophisticated things. Um, and, it, and it really made me conscious of that sort of sense of imbalance that mm. exists, maybe even in my own life, right? Where I probably couldn't do some of the very simple things that maybe my forefathers did to help me survive if I needed to. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I was in the same boat. Um, what you're referring to is the knowledge economy. I mean, that, everything I did was in that quaternary sector. And as you uh, move up the scale from, say, your primary sector activities, like you mentioned, which is uh, basically professions that are directly connected to the earth. They're providing the basic things that society, every society needs, and they always need it. Mm. And then you have the manufacturing sectors that would be the secondary uh, uh, sector activities. And then you have the service sector. That's your banking and some of these um, uh, other ways that kind of make use of what has been manufactured. Uh, then you have your quaternary, and that's your research, science, high technology, all these things. And that's kind of known as the knowledge economy. Mm. And as you move up that, um, those sectors, you know, if you kind of view them as, a, uh, say, a pyramid, um, as you move up that, those sectors, you're moving away from the earth. And I think one of the things right. that's interesting is when you go back to the Bible, God creates Adam in the first chapter of uh, Genesis. So, yeah, and he places him in the garden to tend and keep it. So, I mean, man has a use. It's not that we can't use our minds for the knowledge sector 
to, to create these things, to do education, to do research. It's, there's, that's not a, something that I'm saying we should avoid. What I'm saying is that there are some basic human characteristics that we were created for, and one of those is to be connected to the land and to be connected with creation. And if we get away from that too far, not only are we creating vulnerability for ourselves, but I think we're missing out on some aspects and attributes of God that he wants us to see. Absolutely. Well, I think that in, in that, too, is not just the what gets done, right? Because to your point, mm-hmm. research, uh, you know, uh, higher education, discoveries, scientific evolution, like things like that might fall into that area that is not directly related, or at least not immediately direct related to the idea of tending to, to, to nature and to the earth. But it's also in the who is doing this work, right? The, the what is, mm-hmm. and, and, and one of the cases that you make, which I think is really interesting, again, one of these thoughts I hadn't really thought about, was this idea of these kind of family economy models, right? Mm-hmm. The idea of not just what we do, but then how we do it. How involved are our kids? Maybe one concept most people would understand is the idea of a family business, right? Mm-hmm. But this notion that like we get up, we shave, take a shower, get dressed, get into a car, drive an hour, go someplace, punch a clock, and like come home exhausted, then do all of this whether we're male, female, young, old, et cetera, we do it basically by ourselves is also Mm. a relatively new thing that may not have the best kind of uh, implications. Yeah, not uh, not only not the best, it's tearing apart the fabric of society. I mean, this, this model that we have now where everyone is individuals, all pursuing their own personal ambition in different directions, even down to the core of a family, is unheard of in human history. I mean, there mm. is really no precedent. Uh, the term economy uh, means uh, oh, comes from the the Greek oikonomos, which is oikos, mm-hmm. meaning um, uh, is it law? No, nom- nomia is law. Sorry, oikos is the head of, of or the rule and the mm-hmm. law is a home, mm-hmm. sorry, got that backwards. Oikos is home and, and nomia is law. And uh, that simply means that in the beginning, the whole economy was viewed as the household. That's where the economy was. Mm-hmm. And so this concept of people inside of an individual household separating out to pursue the economy in different directions is very new and novel and I think disruptive to what was intended the family to do together which was working together since the beginning of time. And professions, generally speaking, before the Industrial Revolution did just that. They were family-based professions. Now, not in every case, and it's not an absolute law that you have to do it that way, but the general uh, uh, survey of history shows that families worked and they subsisted together as a family. And so, yeah, that dividing up is a very recent phenomenon, one that I grew up in and I wasn't even aware of that that's sure. not the way that most history had done it. Yeah, it's like these things that are active in our lives, but then in a way they're kind of invisible, right? It's like, well, it's, mm. it's just kind of the way it is. And, 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 it, and it certainly feels that way. Now, I guess, you, you know, in going through the, because the, again, for those who, who listen to the show, like you're going to, I'm going to have to apologize just for flipping pages here because there's just so much here. But you talk about a variety of other things in the book about the debasement of currency, you talk about purchasing power, you talk about the, the negative implications of debt and this kind of debt financing world that we've come to you talk about all these different things and you could i'd love for you to touch on those you know independently if you want but more broadly for for somebody who's reading this 
it becomes very, very clear that we're living at an extraordinarily new novel, to use your term, right? Kind of novel moment in human history. And to some people, you know, as a result of that, they may think, you know, pretty cynically about this and or, or maybe be led to think cynically like, hey, man, what can we do about this at this point? I mean, you're talking about banking systems. You're talking about like the how can everybody is so connected. What happens on the other side of the world? People feel here in a way that they never have before in human history. So how much of this can we really do anything about? In other words, like, is it already baked into the cake to such a degree that we, we kind of have to make do. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, how, how do you reconcile all of the things that are true that you're saying in the book with also maintaining a sense of hopefulness and a, and a sense mm-hmm. for, you know, ultimately, you know, God's love for us and, and Christ's triumph over all of things that are, that are not good? Because you can, you, can, you can feel like, man, there's just like the, the cards are kind of stacked against us. Oh, yeah. Uh, it is an uphill battle for families who want to work together in this day and age. They make no mm-hmm. bones about it. And we have received hundreds of letters from families after the book came out, since the book has come out, asking how can we start to do this in our family? Like they feel that uh, same urgency and they feel that same desire, but they don't see a, a possible way. I mean, a lot of people are deep under college debt. You know, they have to work two jobs just to make ends meet. And um, they are desiring a different way and no one really told them there was another way. So I think that what I, I mean, the the way to answer that first and foremost is that the family economy is God's idea. It's not Mm. our idea. Mm. Um, Industry or industrialization, separating the family, those are man's ideas. Uh, God has to be the genesis of the mover. He's the first mover in this. And so it begins when you have the desire in your heart. When God has planted that seed, I trust as he did for us and as we see him doing for many, many other families, he will grow that. Uh, and and it, it's a matter of walking by faith in a large, in a large measure. Um, you didn't get into this in one day. We're not going to get out of it in one day. But on the spiritual level, you have to understand that you're being led by God into a more holistic, family-centered, uh, stewarding of creation-centered life that, is, that he designed us to live. And mm. so... In terms of practical steps, the first thing is when the father's hearts are turned to the children and the children's hearts are turned to the father. I mean, there are so many things that we can do right now to build stronger households. You don't have to quit your job to build a strong household. Uh, Fathers who take it upon themselves to lead their families, to uh, uh, do worship with their families in their own homes. That's one. That's one that you can do in any economy, in any age is to have family worship at home and start to build a structure of what your family prioritizes above all the other distractions. I just read a statistic the other day. It said uh, uh, 11 to 14 year olds spend an average of nine hours a day uh, in front of a screen. And that's not including schoolwork, that's entertainment. Mm. And so there is room in our advanced industrial society for families to begin building this, the uh, structure, the foundation uh, of, of, of weathering the storms that are certainly coming. But it's got to be a strong foundation that's rooted in the Bible, that's rooted in Christ. Um, upon, on top of that, you can begin to trust that there will be ways and there will be opportunities to start to opt out of a lot of the cultural things that are going on 
there's ways like in education, a lot, we've seen a huge shift in homeschooling where people are starting to do that. This is huge. I mean, it's huge because when parents are taking control of the education of their children, they're laying a generational groundwork. You know, they may not even see it in their lifetimes, but their children and their children's children will inherit an incredible um, uh, 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 blessing and inheritance through that. And so each, you have to look generationally and then each generation can begin to build off of that. Mm. So I could go on, but I don't want to get, in terms of the book is, you know, I, I lay out some very practical steps and very, uh, very realistic options for other professions that people can get into. Yeah. But I always want to emphasize that point. Every person's journey is going to look different. And so you really need to be listening to the spirit and following his, um, following his guidance through God. Well, I, I mean, obviously uh, affirm the idea of the family being that nucleus, that kind of centerpiece, the building block itself of civilization. And for believers, it stands to reason since the family is a reflection of the Trinity itself, right? God mm-hmm. in his very nature is a communion of persons. He is a you know family to use that example. And so, you know, by extension, you can derive from that the importance of the idea of family and specifically the point that you made about fatherhood being so critical to this and orienting as fathers our you know care and attention and love to our children and then them responding in kind mother teresa among her very many quotes you know famously said if you want to change the world go home and love your family right because the fundamental Mm. element of that was look yes you can do all these great works in the world and ministry and preaching and whatever it is that your particular gifts are, but that building block is that, is that family and is that, um, you know, that sort of ground of what everything else springs from. And I do think that because of all the things that you touch on in the book and, 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 and many other things, you know, we've lost sight of that. We've lost sight of the importance of what that building block is. Um, the stats are, are pretty grim in our country in terms of fatherlessness. It's particularly mm-hmm. pronounced in black and Latino communities. Mm-hmm. And the black community is an example. 70% of, of children are growing up without a father in, in the house uh, or in a single parent household. And in the 1960s, that stat was 22%. So there's wow. been a two, in two generations, a more than tripling of that sense of fatherlessness in the Latino community similarly, and obviously in the white community as well. But, but like, I, I really feel that because of a lot of technology and tools and resources that we have available, that idea of nurturing and, and, and leaning and, and jumping, using the family as a kind of springboard to all other activity has kind of sadly, um, you know, faded a lot in the popular mind. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. Um, there's a lot of competition for family life today. You know, between, let's say, for example, um, I mentioned homeschooling, but just let's say schooling as one example where even the siblings in the family are going to be separated if they're in different grades. Um, So even like when we had public schooling in a one-room schoolhouse, you still had some family together in that notion. And we we just continue to kind of atomize into individualistic tastes and pursuits. Um, But another example of that um, would be... um, the entertainment. Um, mm. Our entertainment is, you know, age-oriented, right? And so you have a lot of competition designed to divide the family. And I think, I'm not going too far out on a limb if I were to say, I think that today the family is more divided than in any other time in human history. Yeah. 
I, I just can't, I can't think of another example because you, you had to have the family just to survive. And you also, the same thing could be said about community. We've never been able to live so isolated mm. as we are today because mm. you would have had to live in community just to survive. There was always that safety net in the community that you were surrounded by and you worked together. I mean, you go back and look at, just go back and look at uh, uh, pictures of farms from the 1900s and the late 1800s and you see uh, men, um, um, uh, you know, haying fields with the horses and you'd have like 30, 40 men out there doing a field together because that's the only way they could do it. I mean, they had sure. to work with each other. So whole communities and now families are just so divided today and we have a, uh, an abundance of material things, but we have broken down the relationships that are created when we work together. Mm. One of the points that you bring up in the book related to entertainment is a quote from uh, the CEO, I believe, of Netflix, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. but um, or if not, it was somebody talking about Netflix. But the the notion that Netflix competition isn't like Amazon or Hulu, Netflix competition is sleep, right? right. And in a, in a way, by extension, although this isn't the quote from the CEO, but the way I thought about that quote was, well, yeah, it's sleep, but Netflix competition is also you know, family picnics and worship yes. and, and uh, all the things that you do, right, when you're not sleeping yeah. that were that you used to yeah. do. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, another one to add to that category is um, sports. There's so many activities. Like I said, there's just so many things out there, sports or music or different private lessons for this or that. Um, those are all new concepts. I mean, nobody, you know, kids played sports for a long time. They played games for going all the way back. But in terms of organized sports, that would be, you know, multiple times a week um, with one member of the family and mom and dad are driving them all over Kingdom Come or there's tournaments or there's these things. That's new. You know, mm. we didn't even have that. You know, when I was growing up, we barely had that. And that was like in the 80s. So yeah. This is, a, this is new. There's a ton of competition and it ultimately, to the extent that you're able, you just need to start opting out and build your own family culture to the extent that you're able. And, and every family, that's going to look different. Yeah. Well, balance this for me though. So I, I know you're, you, you're, um, you're knowledgeable on the work of Rod Dreher, right? And the Benedict Option mm -hmm. and, and some of the more popular things that have been written about them. For those who don't know, uh, Dreher wrote a book called The Benedict Option, which, you know, in a way, and I'm going to summarize it and I'm probably going to do it incorrectly, but was this notion of kind of, you know, uh, taking a page from, you know, Benedict of Nursia, St. Benedict, kind of going back to this kind of more monastic way of living, sort of, you know, being, you know, the, the, the sort of the remnant and maybe by prayer and work and, 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 and you know, uh, goodwill to others, but sort of pray for the world a little bit from a distance, but to sort of recede from that. Now, my question for you is, and maybe you've thought about this, but I certainly do, the, how do we reconcile or understand all the good that can be done by opting out of those things without abandoning the other scriptural um, elements that we know, you know, our Lord asks us to go out to every part of the world and, you know, baptize the whole world and teach all nations and the Great Commission and all of these very outward evangelical kind of commitments that we have to bring our brothers and sisters along for the ride. How do we balance that in, in this kind of uh, world of, of, of durable trades? Yeah, that's a great question. Definitely one that we have thought a lot about, and we've we've kind of seen the working out of that concept. Roger, 
I think he summarizes it as strategic retreat. Mm. In other words, there's a retreating, but there's a purpose behind it. And the purpose is to maintain or rebuild a strong Christian culture. And so in the case of opting out, uh, the goal isn't to avoid evil in the world. Um, there's a goal is that you're going to rebuild culture in your family because essentially it's the, it, that's what needs to be preserved. We have, you know, I go on the book that there's anywhere, the statistics is anywhere between like 65 and 90% of young people are abandoning the faith of their yeah. parents by the time they reach college. So it's like, okay, okay, there is a massive, massive problem right now. And, um, uh, if, if, you know, I heard it some put some way, if someone's sending a, uh, missionaries to a foreign country and 90% of those missionaries are being converted to the pagan culture, at some point you got to step back and say, hang on a minute, what's going on? Why <laughs> right, is this not right. working anymore? Well, let's just, we can't just keep sending missionaries over there. So I think the, the first and foremost is to understand the heart behind it. It's not to conceal the light. It's to do something uh, biblical and to, in fact, increase the brightness of that mm. light. You know, the Bible says that when Jesus is raised up, when God is raised up, he all will draw to himself. To him. yeah. Right. And, and so there's an element there of focusing on becoming the salt and light that's different from the culture, that provides an alternate to the culture mm. and allowing that light to shine. And what... Um, what we have actually seen, which is very interesting, is the more that we have delved into becoming a stronger family, uh, doing the things we've talked about here, um, like uh, you know, family worship and and really trying to build a strong family culture, trying to do work together as a family, um, we have seen a lot of people come to us. We have seen, in fact, like a ministry beyond what we had ever seen before mm. when we were trying to go mm. out and tell. There's something about living it that attracts people from all directions. And, and overall, it's a more significant impact than we had had I think before. there's also an element of just what you said earlier, which is having faith in the providence of God for those opportunities to interact mm -hmm. with people who will be drawn to that light, right? So in a way, this idea of, um, you know, opting out, meaning no longer having evangelical kind of activities is kind of a way, it's like a wrong think, right, in a way, because what you're saying, um, which I can definitely see the wisdom of, is, you know, the brighter you can get that light uh, in the kind of fundamental basis of that family, the more that light will attract others. And we have to kind of, you know, continue to rely on providence to make those opportunities manifest. So it's not about kind of putting your light under the bushel basket, right? Because we know that's a no-no, but it's about really how do we fortify that light? How do we make it grow? How do we, you know, how do we build it to such a point that it can be a beacon, right, where people can actually be attracted to it? Right. It's, you know, so Jesus said that um, if a salt loses its saltiness, it's worthless, right? It's just to be thrown out and trampled by men. And I think a lot of times from an evangelistic, you know, a good intention, there's such a goal of trying to be relevant to the world that you actually lose the saltiness mm. of the witness that you're carrying. And so um, there are some ways that I think that Christians should opt out just entirely because they're not, I, I think they're not godly. 
um, uh, uh, you know, in my reading of the scripture, that's that's for our family. You know, we we pursue a certain lifestyle because we believe that it's what God wants us to do. Um, for other families, it might look a little different. But the point is, is that the goal shouldn't be to to be as relevant as we can to culture. The goal, if anything, should be how much can we stand in contrast mm-hmm. to culture, so as to attract those whom God has called to the brighter mm. light, to the salt and the difference that we have some answers that culture cannot provide. There is um, also a very deep temptation to um, conform, right, to the times. Mm-hmm. And we know that straight from the from the pages of Scripture. You know, St. Paul talks often, I think it's in Romans, about not conforming ourselves to the age, but kind of being transformed, right? And and uh, and right. not kind of seeking that, that kind of conformity. But I think another thing that is difficult for people in their Christian walk, especially in the U.S., maybe it's not so hard in other countries, but in the U.S., is this idea of the deep countercultural nature of Christianity. Because it really is. It really does flow mm-hmm. against things. And Jesus tells us constantly, right? It's not Absolutely. the wide gate, it's the narrow gate. It's not you carry your cross once, you carry it daily. I mean, it's like it's constantly told to us. But it's particularly different in kind of an American context, especially a popular one, to go, oh, in order for me to have this, it really means consciously choosing to kind of go against this kind mm-hmm. of grain. Yeah, that's, you know, you're right on. Um, In our culture, in America, there is a very unique situation um, uh, that we're in, because we're in a post-Christian age. I mean, this is what Dreher talks about, too. You know, he he called it, you know, the culture war is over, we lost. Um, and, And so we are in an age where people are coming away from a Christian heritage. And that means that we have a different challenge than we saw in the New Testament church where they were new on the scene. And in every country in the West, when they were bringing Christianity into a pagan culture, they had never seen or heard anything like it. In this culture, Christians are losing relevance because uh, other cultural gods are taking uh, center stage. And so in the process of losing relevance, there's this desire to try to hold on to the, the influence and the, um, I guess, the position that Christianity held at one time in this country. But that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is always confrontational to the gods of this world, to the culture that we're in. And so you can't really, um, you can't really use uh, um, this, this idea of being accepted by the culture you're in, which Americans, by and large, for many centuries, did enjoy a dominant Christian culture. But we're not in that culture mm. anymore. Uh, a Christian's life should look markedly different than the culture that we're in right now, if you're actually living that life according to the Bible. And you know, it's it kind of relates to the earlier point about um, sort of screen time and all the things that are impacting you know young people. This sense of kind of standing apart from from that um, from that herd, right? And it's increasingly difficult when our definition of community, right, which you've talked about being really critical, is defined by well, maybe the amount of followers or the amount of text mm-hmm. conversations that you might have, where there's very little real kind of accompaniment, relationship, exchange that's kind of happening in those environments, it makes it harder to kind of live that countercultural witness is if what you perceive of community 
is all one way, even though you may actually be perceiving a hologram, right? It's like a camouflage. It's, it's a mirage of what community really is. But it's like you look out into the world. It's like, well, everybody's kind of doing this or behaving this way or whatever it is. It's just the mm-hmm. understood norm. It kind of adds to that dilemma, I think, particularly for young people. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's uh, very difficult today uh, with, again, all of the competing interests for your attention. That, that was one of the things, and you're right, it was the Netflix CEO. But that's one of the things that the goal of all of these modern technologies are. And, and believe me, I have worked in this industry for mm-hmm. 20 years. I know all about what they're talking about when they say they're aiming the most powerful supercomputers in the world at people's yeah. brains, at children. Yeah. They want to manipulate you into to stealing your attention. And so if your normative understanding of what a community is, is, is a screen and friends on Facebook, um, that's going to be difficult to break away from because you haven't actually experienced anything true community Mm -hmm. Um, exactly and so that's why you know i encourage people to take the first step you know there's there's a first step and for us one of the first steps we did was we got rid of our television this was probably about seven Mm. years ago we we saw that it was having a negative impact on our children they were about three and four years old at the time and we used to do you know like I think well, maybe a lot of people do. We would sit them down in front of a, a PBS kids show and kind of entertain them for a half an hour while mom could make dinner or whatever we were doing. And we saw that that was very quickly producing bad mm. fruit, bad behaviors, bad attitudes. The siblings, uh, the, the brother and sister were fighting with themselves. And, and it just it was just one of those things that we thought, you know, I don't know why that we're really getting out of this. And the, so we got rid of the TV and temporarily we had a little more work on our hands because uh, you know mom and dad uh, didn't have the easy entertainment option. But I mean, in a matter of weeks, our kids started playing together so much more nicely. They started being more imaginative. They started when they were a little bit older, taught them to read when they were about five years old. They started reading voraciously. Mm-hmm. And their capacity, because they've been off of screens for most of their lives, their capacity to self-play um, far exceeds anything that we were getting out of using the television as a babysitter. And that's just, that's just one example. Uh, I just think that, you know, there are, there are ways that once you take one step and opt out of something that's maybe an unhealthy um, uh, uh, aspect or, or, or influence on your family, other steps will open up for you that you hadn't seen before. And that has certainly been the case with our family. I do want to talk about um, these kind of practical steps, right? Maybe based on your own journey or ones that you make in the book. I do want to get to that. One quick note, though, on this idea of, you know, removing that particular screen, which is, you know, look, people hearing this, because you should know, Rory, and I mentioned this in a past episode, but the folks who listen to this show, we did a recent visualization of the podcast diet of this show, people who listen to the show, and it's all over the place. I mean, you've got like, you know, business, you've got religious, you've got Catholic, you've got Protestant, you've got just all kinds of folks, right? And in different areas of their particular faith walk. But to, to some people hearing what you just said about taking the TV out of the house is like ripping the heart out of somebody's chest, right? It's like, it's a, it's a huge, huge thing. But one of the things that I can imagine you saw in your kids as well was the, the impetus to creativeness, right? The creative genius genius also that mm-hmm. we all possess becoming more pronounced in, in, by, by the removal of that screen if for no other reason than I think what everybody can agree on with screens is that it has this ability to 
you know, kind of uh, there's time dilation, which kind of makes feel, things feel like they've they're, it's taking forever. And there's time constriction, right? And screens really drive a lot of this time constriction where it's like you can burn six hours and you're like, what just, what just happened? Where, 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 where was mm. I? And those could be hours that could be, um, you know, developed in other creative endeavors. So I can imagine you also saw a bit of that fruit as well in just that using that particular example. Oh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, for the fact that uh, Becca and I, my wife and I, we just can do so much more with our lives. I mean, we'll never go back because, you know, we have a farm here, we have animals, we have gardens, we have, um, uh, we're, we're doing a bit of publishing with, you know, not just my book, but we're doing, working on other projects. Um, we're learning to sew quilts and, um, and, and build workshops and do all kinds of different things that, you know, quite honestly, and I live, I would have been one of those people too, that, you know, getting rid of the TV sound would have sounded like the most crazy thing. What on earth would I do without my television? That was me for most of my yeah. life, but until the kids came on the scene and I really saw the direct mm. impact. So, but now, I mean, there's just no thought in our mind that we would ever bring it back because we have so much more time and so much more productive opportunities in our life. And the family, I mean, their kids play well together. They read, they they go play outside for ample chunks of the day when it's not, you know, 14 below zero in our southern Minnesota tundra. But um, it, the fruit of all of these things, you'll know, Jesus says, you'll know if something is worthwhile Absolutely. by the fruit. And so for us, you know, the fruit of these things is so powerful mm. as as it is also with working together, which is which is really what the thrust of all of this leads to. My brother, those who listen to the show know that I often talk about my brother. My brother is a Benedictine. Speaking of Benedict, my brother's a Benedictine hmm. monk and a priest, wow. and he lives in a monastery. And I've many, many times gone to do retreats um, at that monastery. And one of the things that blows me away instantly is how long the days seem to last. Hmm. I'll, I'll look, because, of course, there isn't that sort of constant screen time and and sort of dilation or, or dilution of, of our day by all, you know, these different images. And I'll, you know, I'll look down at my, you know, watch or whatever at some point in the middle of the day, expecting to see three o'clock and it's like 11, you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's just, it's like, wow, like you just created like a whole nother day. Yeah, very true. Yeah. I mean, now we're actually used to that longer day. And so I don't, you know, we don't feel it as, as much as we did before, but that's very true. And, and it's, it's just something that's very productive for us and we want to keep it that way. Rory, how do you, how do you feel about the subject of innovation? Okay. Because I'm mindful that a lot of people have, you know, we talked about some platforms, media, et cetera, the acceleration, built-in obsolescence, all these different things. And some people can look at that and say, well, that's why all technology, all, you know, innovation, all of these things, you know, are, are, are bad and, and kind of to be, you know, avoided. But at the same time, a lot of those opinions oftentimes come from people who didn't have like a catbird seat into innovation and technology the way that you have. So I'm just curious how you view the idea of technological innovation, if anything. I mean, you, you talk about AI, you talk about machine learning in the book, you talk about all these different things, killer toasters, you talk about internet of things, I mean, you talk about a bunch of different things, but what's your view on innovation properly understood, technology properly understood? What is its role for mankind in God's plan? Uh, yeah, and that's a good question. Um, the, the key thing to understand is that not all technology is the same. Just because something falls under the umbrella of tech doesn't mean that it's good or bad. 
there is an intent behind it. Like I said with the example of the social media sites. Uh, when I was uh, writing the book, I looked up on uh, LinkedIn, or, or no, it was a, a, job, a job website. And Facebook was hiring for 300 uh, psychology-related professions. Wow. Why? Why? And that's what they were hiring. I don't know how many they employ, but why does Facebook need, you know, let's say thousands of psychologists? Well, because they're manipulating people. Mm. So um, it depends on what the technology is for. And I think that the existence of technology is not the evil. Um, a moldboard plow is technology, right? It helped farmers do a better job, a more efficient job of farming. Uh, but there are other technologies like uh, the centralization of factories that I believe are inherently bad for society because the, the idea is to take production out of the home and bring it into a centralized factory in a city where the family has no choice but to mm. work independently and to be divided up for the majority of their day. And so, and I, I know that people will cry and, and howl and scream at the idea that we, we can't have the material abundance, you know, if we don't have the factories. And I get all that. And, and I don't know what the right way back is necessarily because it seems like it's a very individualized answer. But I do know that I don't think that the stuff we made was more important than the relationships we lost. Hmm. So the answer to technology is that it, it's a case-by-case -case basis. You have to discern, and this is what communities do that still live in, let's say, Christian settlements, or I would say probably your brother in the monastery. They do use technology, but they're very deliberate in what technology comes in. And is mm. it something that's going to be healthy for the family and healthy for the community? Or is it something that is going to divide and uh, uh, bring harm? And so I think that there has to be a willingness, like in, in our case, I use the example of television. I said, that's a tech we don't want here. And so that's something that we have foregone. Mm. Yeah, I'm not even going to ask you about what your views are on the metaverse then, because I can, I can imagine <laughs> that that probably falls into that category of like the centralized factory, but on steroids. Um, what, what are, Rory, what are, what are some of the, those practical things, right? Um, if you were going to give somebody, like I said, this book, part of the exciting thing about this book is that I, as a marketer, as a person who's built businesses for a long time, I see the various platforms and potential that this has, right? It can be, obviously it's in book form. It could be a variety of different other kinds of storytelling modalities. Right. It could be a workshop. It could be a class. It could be a variety of things. Some of those things you're already doing. Right. Um, but what are like if you were going to give that, you know, elevator version of three, four five things that people, the milestones that you hit along this journey, what are they? Hmm. You talked about fathers so, as an example <clears throat> first, you know, so like that yeah, would seem to be like I number think, one. <clears throat> you know, when you're talking about a family centered economy, you need to have uh, fathers who are going to take their roles seriously. Uh, as heads of household, meaning uh, they need a vision. They need to lead their family with a vision. And that vision is only going to come from God. And so I always tell people it begins on your knees. Uh, the path forward begins on your knees and you need to pray to receive a vision. And then once you have the vision, you need to take the first scary step because there's going to be a lot of risk along the way. But our God is faithful. And I don't think that he'll lead you astray if you're sincere in that. And if you're, I would say this, if you're a father and your heart is not turned to your children, you need to pray to God. You need to ask him to turn your heart to your children. That's the only way. That first 
link between parents and children has to be a strong bond. They have to desire to pass their culture, their faith, their heritage on, and they have to desire their children to become strong uh, families themselves in their turn. So that that's always where I would lay that first groundwork. But there are many ways for families to be, begin reconnecting. And I think gardening is a great way to get started. Uh, there's a family, it's a family enterprise um, that everyone can participate in. And we started gardening on, uh, on an apartment, apartment balcony um, mm. it, with potted tomato plants. Um, <laughs> and little did we know that that yarn would unravel into something where we moved to a farm a few years later. But there are ways that you can, any activity you can get where the kids are working with mom and dad, especially if it's some kind of business or entrepreneurial endeavor where there's a lot of moving pieces and you're, you're mentoring your children while you're doing something productive. Those are great opportunities, and each one will lead to another opportunity as the family economy begins to grow. So, I mean, there's, there's, the, there's gardening, there's getting some land, if that's a possibility for you, where you have a little bit more space to do things. There is uh, keeping some animals. You know, people, backyard chickens are getting quite popular. Oh, yeah. That's Even great, here in L.A. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. A lot of cities are relaxing the ordinances around that. And chickens are a great way you can start, you know, close the supply chain down to your backyard and get your <laughs> eggs right. So, um, so growing your own food, uh, food, fiber, and shelter, right? Those are the common base human needs, food, fiber, and shelter. What can you do to start supplying a little bit more of your own needs? Uh, what can you, what skills can you learn to build uh, to do maybe a little remodeling projects yourself. Any of these basic human skills are um, very advantageous, not just to do yourself to save a buck or something, but to look for opportunities to work together as a family and begin passing on to your kids what you're learning. I mean, I'll give, for example, uh, both my wife and I grew up in the suburbs. We didn't have a farming bone in our bodies. I mean, we are totally green at this. And I think that's part of the reason why we get contacted by a lot of people because um, we are the poster children for the suburban, you know, uh, life, and we we are totally starting everything from scratch. So, um, one of the things I've noticed though is our children are not; they're mm. growing up on a farm. They have skills and abilities that I never had, and they have they will take that with them. They will build on that. Doesn't mean they have to be farmers, but they will have that farming knowledge. They'll have that that kind of innate uh, understanding on how, where food comes from and how to grow it and how to do it sustainably. So those are all things that even if you feel like you can't get to where you wanna go in, 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 in the amount of time you have, just by virtue of working together with your family, you're passing on a really valuable inheritance to your children. Mm, fascinating. Before we get to our, our final, because talk about time time uh, constriction, uh, you know, this hour is kind of blown by pretty quick. But Rory, before uh, before we get to Wait What, which is our final segment, um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how folks can follow what you're doing, right? The book is called Durable mm -hmm. Trades, Family-Centered Economies That Have Stood the Test of Time. It's available pretty much anywhere. But talk about, uh, you know, the Grove Stand, talk about your newsletter, talk about the ways that people can get connected to you. Yeah, I mean, if any of this resonates with you, I'd encourage you to come on out to our website, thegrovestead.com. Uh, we keep a family blog there. We publish a family newsletter where we write a lot about what we're learning 
um, in building a family economy. Uh, in, in fact, um, that's probably the best way to follow how just at least our family and when we also publish articles from other families who are doing the same thing. If you want to get some more nuts and bolts on how this works out, go check out the Grovestead newsletter. Um, and then the other thing I'll mention is that we just launched a new nonprofit organization called Gather mm. and Grow. And the whole goal of this organization is to do what we've been talking about here today. It's to rebuild the family economy. And it's all um, uh, education, uh, speaking and, and uh, teachings and other ways to mentor and support people who are trying to do this and trying to walk in this way. So that website is gatherandgrow.us. And if you go there, you'll see a little bit about um, how you can plug in and um, kind of keep posted in, in taking these first steps and be encouraged along the way. We love to encourage other families because it's a big, it's a big step, but it's one that's such a blessing. You will, you will never regret it. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll have all this information in the show notes so people can check it out uh, and visit all of these th resources that you just mentioned. For my part, look, I, my great hope is I get a chance to kind of visit you out there and uh, and take a page uh, of Love learning it. from you as well. I can definitely see how it can be inspirational, just even from a distance, watching the stuff that you and your family are creating and the lessons that you're learning along the way, right? It's very, very vulnerable, very human, very open. Mm -hmm. And, and it's something that uh, I can definitely see uh, can produce a lot of great fruit. So, Rory, our you know, continued mm -hmm. prayer and blessings for the prosperity of this new way of life for you and that you get that message far and wide. Amen. And keep praying for families. We, we say that we pray for families that God would part the seas, that they will be able to find a way across this, in what seems to be an uncrossable chasm, but the Lord can do it. And so keep praying with us that, uh, that he will open up doors for people. Amen. Rory, are you ready to play then? Wait, what? <laughs> oh. I'm sure you've been looking forward to this, my friend. Everybody does. All right. We're going to, I'm not even waiting for an answer. You are ready. All right. So uh, let's, let's ease into the questions this week, Rory. So before your recent move to the country, you lived in Minneapolis, right? Known for Correct. a variety of different things, both urban, suburban, and other. So you're the right person to ask, which of these is false of, about Minneapolis? Which is false about Minneapolis? Ready? Is it A, speaking of killer toasters, is it A, the pop-up toaster was first invented and marketed in Minneapolis? Is it B, the streets of the city are named after presidents and follow a chronological order to help immigrants prepare for their citizenship tests? Or is it C, the Minneapolis Public Library was the first library in America to separate its religion books into an independent section? Which of those is false about Minneapolis, Rory? Oh, man. Um... <laughs> um I'm going to say, uh, is it B, the, the names of the streets? The names of the streets. Actually, no, that one is oh. true. The correct answer okay. is C. The Minneapolis wow, Public okay. Library indeed was the first to, to, uh, to create a section for a particular category of books in the country, but it was children's books that was the uh. very first section they created. It turns out that several streets in the northeast region of Minneapolis are named after U.S. presidents in the order that they served, hmm. and it was done as a way originally to help immigrants prepare for their citizenship test. So there you go. 
All right, Rory, we'll give you a partial credit for that since you're still, uh, you know, you're still a local. I'm not going to remove your uh, citizenship card there. Oh, yeah, thank you. Thank goodness. All right. So question number two, Rory, we've talked quite a bit about innovation, impact of the Industrial Revolution. Um, and, you know, some might say, as we talked about, that maybe innovation is something that we should be very skeptical about, etc. Now, we also know, though, that Christians and Catholics specifically have been responsible for, for doing a lot of really innovative things, right? The system of trial by jury, we helped develop mm-hmm. algebra, the laws of anatomy, the laws of light, the laws of electricity, et cetera, et cetera. We invented the clock, telescopes, reading glasses, lighting conductors. And the church has also made great contributions to fundamental scientific questions. Mm. One such question, Rory, has related to the very origins of our universe which we now understand more broadly as the Big Bang, a notion which proposed that all the matter in the universe began nearly 14 billion years ago in an instant thrusting into being and has been expanding ever since. This discovery, Rory, was made by a Catholic priest from Belgium. Do you happen to know his name? No. All right. Well, that was an easy one. (laughs) His name is Father George Lemaitre. And he was a uh, priest, a theoretical physicist, a mathematician, astronomer, etc. And he was the first to theorize that the fact that the nearby galaxies were receding could be explained by an expanding universe. So he Mm. proposed, was the very first to propose a version of the Big Bang Theory Mm. as the origin of the universe. So there you go. Little little known facts. I'm a young Earth creationist, so I don't know uh, where I would fall on the line with him. So. There you go. Um, all right. So the, the, the third one you're guaranteed to get right, Rory. So, um, you know, have hope because it's a time machine question. There's always a time machine question and it's whatever you want. Okay. So here's the situation. You get a chance to travel forward in time to West Africa in the year 2122. So exactly 100 years into the future. Upon arrival, you quickly begin to experience a profoundly Christian culture. Now, while you learn that Christianity has shrunken in the U.S. and Europe to near invisibility, nevertheless, the African continent is abuzz with the gospel. Mm. Churches everywhere, vocations to religious life in the clerical state growing, families thriving, and even many of the economic challenges that affected the continent in your day seem to have diminished greatly. Now, you eventually happen upon a village elder in a small town, And you're curious about this great Christian age that you seem to be experiencing, so you ask him to give you a summary of the last century in his country. Okay, he mentions to you the secret that has created such Christian prosperity in his country, and as you listen, you're surprised at one of the very simple insights he shares as the root cause of their success. So Rory, what is that simple insight? Hmm, that's easy. The Bible is the authority in all matters of faith and life. There you go. Can't get more fundamental than that. So, so that, that and that one you're guaranteed, like I said, guaranteed to get it right, Rory. So, um, <laughs> great, great job. Appreciate you playing that game and uh, a great privilege to have you on the show, brother. Thank you very much for being here. Oh, thank you. And, really uh, enjoyed and- the conversation. Awesome. And and just continued uh, blessings and prosperity on your family and all the good work that you're doing. We'll have everybody check out mm-hmm. the book, Durable Trades, Family-Centered Economies that have stood the test of time and check you out uh, on your different uh, you know web destinations, etc. So God awesome. bless you and yours. Thank you so much, Charlie. It's been a pleasure today. Have a great, great week and God bless all your ministries. 
Absolutely. And if you're listening to our voice, that means that you should subscribe to this show. You should share this episode with a friend. Maybe you've had a discussion similar with somebody and this show can help them build some confident competence and confidence and knowledge in the areas that we've been discussing. So I invite you to subscribe and pass the show on along to a friend. And we'll be very pleased to see you again next time on Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's C-A-L-L-U-S-A.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Kasten and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.